This is a recording of chapter three of the book, After the Fact, The Art of Historical Detection by James West Davidson and Mark Hamilton Lytle from the sixth edition, All Rights Reserved. As a disclaimer, I do not have the rights to this text. This podcast is meant exclusively for private use and not for public distribution. Chapter 3. The Visible and Invisible Worlds of Salem. What sparked the witchcraft hysteria of 1692? Historians studying the psychological and social context of this tragic incident have turned up unexpected answers. If historians are in the business of reconstruction, it follows that they must make some of the same kinds of decisions as architects or builders. Before they begin their work, they must decide on the scale of their projects, how much ground should be covered, a year, 50 years, several centuries. How will the subject matter be defined or limited? The story of slavery's arrival in Virginia might be ranked as a moderately large topic. It spans some 60 years and involves thousands of immigrants and an entire colony. Furthermore, the topic is large because of its content and themes. The rise of slavery surely ranks as a central strand of the American experience. To grasp it well requires more breadth of vision than, for instance, understanding the history of American hats during the same period. The lure of topics both broad and significant is undeniable, and there have always been historians willing to pull on their seven-league boots. The great equalizer of such grand plans is the 24-hour day. Historians have only a limited amount of time, and the more years covered, the less time available to research the events in each year. Conversely, the narrower the area of research, the more the historian can become immersed in a period's details. A keen mind working on an apparently small topic may uncover relationships and connections whose significance goes beyond the subject matter's original boundaries. Salem Village in 1692 is such a microcosm, one familiar to most students of American history. That was the place and the time witchcraft came to New England with a vengeance, dominating the life of the village for 10 months. Because the witchcraft episode exhibited well-defined boundaries in both time and space, it shows well how an oft-told story may be transformed by the intensive research of small-scale history. Traditionally, the outbreak at Salem has been viewed as an incident separate from the events of everyday village life. Even to label the witchcraft episode as an outbreak, suggest that it is best viewed as an epidemic, alien to the community's normal functions. The germs of bewitchment break out suddenly and inexplicably, agents presumably of some invading disease. Over the past decades, however, 
historians have studied their traumatic experiences of 1692 in great detail. In doing so, they have created a more sophisticated model of the mental world behind the Salem outbreak. They have also suggested ways in which the, the witchcraft episode has, was tied to the everyday events of village life. The techniques of small-scale history, in other words, have provided a compelling psychological and social context for the events of 1692. Bewitchment at Salem Village The baffling troubles experienced in Salem Village began during the winter of 1691 to 1692 in the home of the village's minister, Samuel Paris. There, Paris's nine-year-old daughter, Betty, and his niece, Abigail Williams, had taken strangely ill, claiming that they had been bitten and pinched by invisible agents, their arms, necks, and backs turned this way and that way, and returned back again, beyond the power of any epileptic fits or natural disease to affect. Later traditions, not necessarily reliable, suggested that the afflictions came after a group of girls met to divine what sort of men their future husbands might be, a subject of natural enough interest. Lacking a crystal ball, they used the next available substitute, the white of a raw egg suspended in a glass of water. At some point during these conjurings, things went sour. One of the girls thought she detected a specter in the likeness of a coffin in the glass, a threatening omen. Betty, the youngest of the girls, began complaining of pinching, prickling sensations knife-like pains, and the feeling that she was being choked. In the weeks that followed, three more girls exhibited similar symptoms. Whatever the cause of the young girl's symptoms, the Reverend Paris was baffled by them, as were several doctors and ministers he brought in to observe the strange behaviors. When one doctor hinted at the possibility of witchcraft, a neighbor, Mary Sibley, suggested putting to use a bit of New England folklore to reveal whether there had been any sorcery. Sibley persuaded two slaves living in the Paris household, John Indian and his wife Tichuba, to bake a witch cake made of rye meal and urine given them by the girls. The cake was fed to a dog, the theory of bewitchment confirmed, presumably if the dog suffered torments similar to those of the afflicted girls. This experiment seems to have frightened the girls even more, for their symptoms worsened. Thoroughly alarmed, adults pressed the girls for the identity of the specters they believed were tormenting them. When the girls named three women, a formal complaint was issued, and on February 29th, the suspects were arrested. That was the obvious action to take, for 17th century New Englanders conceived of witchcraft as a crime. If the girls were being tormented, it was necessary to punish those responsible. Two of the women arrested, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, were already unpopular in the village. The third accused was Paris's Indian slave, Tichuba. 
Tichiba may have been purchased by Paris during a visit to the Caribbean and was perhaps originally from South America, Florida, or the Georgia Sea Islands. When questioned by village magistrates, Sarah Good angrily denied the accusations, suggesting instead that Sarah Osborne was guilty. Osborne denied the charges, but the dynamics of the hearings changed abruptly when Tichiba confessed to being a witch. One account of the trials, published eight years later, reported that her admission came after an angry Reverend Paris had beaten Tichiba. For whatever reason, she testified that four women and a man were causing the afflictions of the young women. Good and Osborne were among them. They hurt the children, Tichibo reported, and they lay all upon me, and they tell me if I will not hurt the children, they will hurt me. The tale continued, complete with apparitions of black and red rats, a yellow dog with a head like a woman, a thing all over Harry, all the face Harry, and midnight rides to witches' meetings where plans were being laid to attack Salem. During New England's first 70 years, few witchcraft cases had come before the courts. Those that had were dispatched quickly and calm soon returned. Salem proved different. In the first place, Tichiba had described several other witches and a wizard, though she said she was unable to identify them. The villagers felt they could not rest so long as these agents remained at large. Furthermore, the young women continued to name names, and now not just community outcasts, but a wide variety of villagers, some respectable church members. The new suspects joined Tichiba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne in jail. By the end of April, the hunt even led to a former minister, George Burroughs, then living in Maine. If the accused refused to admit guilt, the magistrates looked for corroborating proof. Physical evidence, such as voodoo dolls and pins found among the suspect's possessions, were considered incriminating. Furthermore, if the devil made a pact with someone, he supposedly required a physical mark of allegiance and thus created a witch's tit where either he or his familiar, a likeness in animal form, might suck. Prisoners in the Salem trials were often examined for any abnormal marks on their bodies. Aside from physical signs, the magistrates considered evidence that a witch's ill will might have caused a victim to suffer. This kind of black magic, harm by occult means, was known as maleficium. Villager Sarah Gadge, for example, testified that she had once refused Sarah good lodging for the night. According to Gadge, Good fell to muttering and scolding extremely, and so told said Gadge if she would not let her in, she would give her something, and the next morning after, one of the said Gadge's cows died in a sudden, terrible, and strange, unusual manner. The magistrates also considered what they called spectral evidence, ghostly likenesses of the witches that victims reported seeing during their torments. 
In an attempt to confirm that these specters were really links to the accused witches, the magistrates kept the afflicted women in the courtroom and observed them while the accused were being examined. Why do you hurt these children? One of the magistrates asked Sarah Osborne in a typical examination. I do not hurt them, replied Osborne. The record continues. The children above named being all personally present accused her face to face, which being done, they were all hurt, afflicted, and tortured very much. Which being over, and they out of their fits, they said that said Sarah Osborne did then come to them and hurt them. The problem with spectral evidence was that it could not be corroborated by others. Only the victim saw the shape of the tormentor. Such testimony was normally controversial, for theologians in Europe, as well as in New England, believe that spectral evidence should be treated with caution. After all, what better way for the devil to spread confusion than by assuming the shape of an innocent person? In Salem, however, the magistrates considered all spectral testimony as paramount. When they handed down indictments, almost all the charges referred only to the spectral torments exhibited by accusers during the pretrial hearings. On June 2nd, a court especially established to deal with the witchcraft outbreak heard its first case, that of a woman named Bridget Bishop. Even before the Salem controversy, Bishop Bishop had been suspected of witchcraft by a number of villagers. She was quickly convicted and eight days later hanged from a scaffold on a nearby rise. The site came to be known as Witch's Hill, with good reason, since on June 29th the court again met and convicted five more women. One of them, Rebecca Nurse, had been found innocent but the court's chief justice disapproved the verdict and convinced the jurors to change their minds. On July 19th, Nurse joined the other four women on the scaffold, staunch churchwoman that she was, praying for the judge's souls as well as her own. Sarah Good remained defiant to the end. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, she told the attending minister, and if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Still, the accusations continued. Still, the court sat. As the net was cast wider, more and more accused were forced to work out their response to the crisis. A few, most of them wealthy, went into hiding until the fur subsided. Giles Corey, a farmer whose wife Martha was executed as a witch, refused to submit to a trial by jury. The traditional penalty for such a refusal was the Peen Fort at Dur, in which the victim was placed between two boards and had heavy stones placed on him until he agreed to plead innocent or guilty. Although that punishment had been outlawed in Massachusetts, the court nonetheless carried it out. Corey was slowly crushed to death, stubborn to the end. His last words were said to be, More weight. Some of the accused admitted guilt, the most satisfactory solution for the magistrates. Puritans could be a remarkably forgiving people. They were not interested in punishment for its own sake. 
if the lawbreaker gave evidence of sincere regret for his or her misdeeds, Puritan courts would often reduce or suspend the sentence. So it was in the witchcraft trials at Salem, unlike most trials in Europe where confessing witches were executed. But the policy of forgiveness had unforeseen consequences. Those who were wrongly accused quickly realized that if they did not confess, they were likely to be hanged. If they did admit guilt, they could escape death, but would have to demonstrate their sincerity by providing details of their misdeeds and names of other participants. The temptation must have been great to confess, and in doing so, to implicate other innocent people. Given such pressures, the web of accusations continued to spread. August produced six more trials and five hangings. Elizabeth Proctor, the wife of a tavern keeper, received a reprieve because she was pregnant, the court being unwilling to sacrifice the life of an innocent child. Her husband, John, was not spared. September saw another eight victims hanged. More than a hundred suspected witches remained in jail. Pressure to stop the trials had been building, however. One member of the court, Nathaniel Saltonstall, resigned in protest after the first execution. More important, the ministers of the province were becoming uneasy. In public, they had supported the trials, but privately they wrote letters cautioning the magistrates. Finally, in early October, Increase Mather, one of the most respected preachers in the colony, published a sermon signed by 14 other pastors that strongly condemned the use of spectral evidence. Mather argued that to convict on the basis of a specter, which everyone agreed was the devil's creation, in effect took Satan at his own word. That, in Mather's view, risked disaster. It were better that ten suspected witches should escape than that one innocent person should be condemned, he concluded. Mather's sermon convinced the colony's governor, William Phipps, that the trials had gone too far. He forbade any more arrests and dismissed the court. The following January, a new court met to dispose of the remaining cases, but this time almost all the defendants were acquitted. Phipps immediately granted a reprieve to the three women who were convicted, and in April released the remaining prisoners. Satan's controversy with Salem was finished. That, in outline, is the witchcraft story as it has come down to us for so many years. Rightly or wrongly, the story has become an indelible part of American history. The startling fits of possession, the drama of the court examinations, the eloquent pleas of the innocent condemned, all make for a superb drama that casts into shadow the rest of Salem's more pedestrian history. Indeed, the episode is unrepresentative. Witchcraft epidemics were not a serious problem in New England and were even less of a problem in other American colonies. Such persecutions were much more common in Europe where they reached frightening proportions. The death of 20 people at Salem is sobering, but the magnitude of the event diminishes considerably 
alongside the estimate of 40,000 to 60,000 people executed for witchcraft in early modern Europe. Now, a curious thing has resulted from this illumination of a single isolated episode. Again and again, the story of Salem Village has been told, quite naturally, as a drama complete unto itself. The everyday history that preceded and followed the trials, the petty town bickerings, arguments over land and ministers, was for many years largely passed over. Yet the disturbances at Salem did not occur in a vacuum. They may indeed have constituted an epidemic, but not the sort caused by some germ pool brought into the village over the rutted roads from Boston. So the historian's first task is to take the major strands of the witchcraft affair and see how they are woven into the larger fabric of New England society. Salem Village was small enough that virtually every one of its residents can be identified. We can find out who owned what land, the amount of taxes each resident paid, what sermons people listened to on Sundays. In doing so, a richer, far more intriguing picture of New England life begins to emerge. This is part one of chapter three. There will be three more parts. I've broken them up that way in order to make the podcast a little bit shorter.